0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now.
0: And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book, Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this
1: podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote.
0: Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point.
1: Okay. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm published author Will Summer, joined by Kelly Wilde of The Daily Beast. Kelly, how you doing?
0: I'm doing good, Will. You're, like you said, published author, book one week out. How you doing?
1: Good. I'm pumped. The reviews have been good. A lot of hearing from a lot of Fever Dreams fans who love the book. Again, trust the plan. It's about QAnon. It's out now. Some folks, not such fans. Some of the Amazon reviewers, a lot of QAnon folks got in there. I think my favorite guy was a guy who said, my family member gave this to me because he thinks I'm the crazy one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so that's what we're dealing with. But otherwise, it's been positive. And look, we're going to get into the the podcast real quickly, by which I mean the sad demise of Dilbert put upon office worker. But I just wanted to flag for folks, if you are in the British Isles, the United Kingdom copy is coming out on March 2nd or this Thursday. And also, if you are on the other side of the world, if you live in the Southwest, the American Southwest, I will be at the Tucson Festival of Books this coming weekend, March 3rd through 5th, where I'll be appearing with people like Tim Miller, Major Garrett, and former Fever Dreams guest, Philip Bump. So I'll be out in the desert. I'll be working on my base tan. Come through if you're in the area.
0: <laughs> Sounds great.
1: Okay, Kelly. We got a big story coming out of Michigan. We got QAnon. We got JFK Jr., and we have the fate of the Michigan Republican Party. What's going on?
0: Okay, so cast your mind back to November when we had a big, long podcast on Juan Osavan. He's one of these QAnon fellows saying that he's JFK Jr., kind of a competitive field, but he had the edge in some ways because he was trying to compile this coalition of Q-adjacent people who were running for Secretary of State. Now, we kind of thought he was uh, maybe a contender, maybe some of these people would win, didn't, mm, all fell flat, all lost. And one of them maybe I think the weakest contender in that bunch, Christina Caramo, is actually the one who's sort of recouped a win after this fallout. So earlier this month, she became the leader of the Michigan Republican Party. And wouldn't you know it, she's kicked off her tenure there with some maybe questionable comments. This is one that she gave to Steve Bannon's podcast just earlier this month. She said, Joe Biden is, quote, a known traitor and an illegitimate president. That's kind of par for the course in the Bannon podcast. But she really got into the weeds here. She goes, what prompted me to run run for chair of the Michigan Republican Party is the fact that Michigan has become ground zero for the globalist takeover of the United States of America. Now, okay, Michigan, not going to knock it, but I'm just going to say if I were the globalist overlords, I would probably set my eyes on, I don't know, maybe something like maybe a Miami seems like a good contender. Michigan, just dark horse, I think, for the globalist takeover. I
1: think we're seeing this a lot, this idea that the globalists have come to terrorize your patch of America. Thinking about Eamon Bundy's run in, I believe, Idaho for governor, which failed, and he was just saying the globalists have seized on Idaho, and they're coming to take all our land. So really, wherever you are, it seems like the globalists are after you. Christina Caramo, as you said, is really, you know, when people get tagged as kind of QAnon candidates, sometimes it's someone like Lauren Boebert, who did a little nodding at QAnon, certainly more than I think one should. But and then sometimes it's someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was kind of going through the lore and really deep into it. And I would put Christina Caramo more on the Marjorie Taylor Greene spectrum. I mean, this is someone who had said that abortions are child sacrifices. And she didn't mean this in sort of a metaphorical way but in very much a, like, this is a sacrifice to the Dark Lord Baal.
0: Yeah, her justification for that is, you know, the Satanic Temple, they're kind of like a meme anti-religion thing.
1: Oh, sick of them. They are anathema on this podcast because of their their little pranks. Yes.
0: Can't stand a prankster. Can't stand a tricky little (laughs) goblin. None of that stuff. But they have on their site kind of a contrarian argument in favor of abortion rights saying, well, under our religion, you can. And she goes onto the Satanic Temple website and she's like, see, the Satanists say that abortion is part of their religion. And therefore, all reproductive rights are a Luciferian blood sacrifice.
1: You hit on something else here, which is whenever someone is saying Luciferian, right? Maybe you don't need to spend all your time looking at this stuff to know that that's a code word, but it is. Because sometimes when people say satanic, okay, all right, that's kind of entry-level stuff. When people are saying Luciferian, that means they're deep into QAnon and related things, because then they start getting into how, oh, there's this thing in the vaccine called Lucifer erase and all this kind of stuff. It does not take long to get into that stuff. I mean, so yeah, so the point here is that this is someone who's really, really out there. I mean, as you said, she was part of the Wano-Savin coalition to take over American elections in battleground states. She appeared at the QAnon conference, the Patriot Double Down, which was a really kind of jacked up QAnon event. I mean, this is someone who's really out there. And Kelly, this is a case where the election came down to, it wasn't like there was a real moderate Republican on the other side.
0: Oh, no, not at all. So this is kind of the Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame of like Michigan also runs because this battle for the head of the Michigan GOP really came down to Christina Caramo and a fellow named Matt DiPerno. He was actually Trump's choice in this race. Trump actually made an endorsement. Matt DiPerno is one of these kind of washed up lawyers who made his name trying to overturn the 2020 election. He filed some wacky lawsuits related to Antrim, Michigan, where there was like briefly a clerk filed something in the 2020 election and reversed it that night. And he, Matt DiPerno went in and said this deep red county is actually the globalist foothold for dethroning Donald Trump. So these were two candidates neck and neck here. And Christina Caramo beat him out. I think it speaks to maybe that she's, even with all the wacky things she said, she's like marginally more competent and less off-putting than Matt DiPerno, who's...
1: Matt is a real drag. And I don't mean to put down this guy, maybe a little bit, but this guy... He's kind of a drab-looking guy. What's interesting to me, and I think he kind of hits on an issue the GOP had in the voter fraud stuff, was that they couldn't really find a lawyer I mean because it's all made up and so this is maybe why they couldn't find someone <laughs> who could explain it but they couldn't find someone who could explain it in a compelling way who wasn't a just like a shark raving lunatic right and so you had on one hand you had Lynn Wood who's very charismatic or Sydney, I guess Sidney Powell but you had these people who were clearly like any normal person could watch them for a minute and say well I can't trust what this person is saying on the other hand you had someone like Matt DiPerno who gains a veneer of respectability by being one of these people who's like alright time to look at Grafner number three, here's the packet captures, whatever. And you look at this and you say, well, this doesn't make any sense. And this guy's boring. So they never really found that person. And American democracy is probably the better for it. But as you said, I mean, this guy went down in flames and now Christina Karamo is running the show.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it kind of does speak to the fact that, OK, that these were the two standout candidates in the race. I mean, what can we take away from that? I think it's that Republicans have learned almost nothing from their midterm losses, where they picked their furthest right candidates and alienated everybody who was you know a hardline election denialist and this is what they end up with yeah you've got Christina Caramo I'm sure she's red meat for the base but like who actually wants to listen to her talk about how evolution is a hoax and it shouldn't be taught on schools? Who actually wants a state GOP chair who's going in the Red Pill News podcast to talk about Satanism? It's just, it seems like a double down, not a patriot double down, but just a digging the hole deeper into this tactic that really did not net any wins for them in the midterms.
1: So now Michigan is, and you're hitting on something here, is that Michigan, the Michigan Democrats did better than Democrats nationally in the midterms. So even though... Generally, Republicans should have been boosted. It worked out worse nationally for Republicans than expected. But in Michigan, Republicans did even worse. And so now they're looking at, they've lost three elections here. And it seems as though, based on some reporting just out Tuesday from the Dispatch, it seems as though the guys who fund the Republican Party in Michigan are getting a little fed up. I mean, this is ostensibly a battleground state. It's, Republicans should not be losing this solidly. And it seems as though these people are starting to recognize that the grassroots is just electing people like Christina Caramo, someone who Who's not, I would say, really well poised to rebuild the Republican Party in Michigan. So the story out of the dispatch is the donors and the officials and the operatives and the business groups are deciding to build their own separate apparatus outside of the Michigan GOP because of Christina Caramo. And here's a quote from a guy who runs a building trade group. There's no way in hell you can look at the state party apparatus as a stock and say, gee, I want to invest more in that <laughs> stock just the opposite. And then he says the party is a grievance driven party and not one to be taken seriously. So it's Republican chaos there. It would seem to be in large part because of Christina Karamo.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just a one closing note here, their outgoing party leadership was not great either. Previous Michigan Republican chair is Mishan Maddox. She's one of the progenitors of the furries pooping in litter boxes in public schools thing. She posted that way before anybody else it was way out in the Facebook at wilds with this. So I think there's a trend emerging and it doesn't surprise me at all. The donors are going, "Mm, maybe I'm not going to go with the kitty litter candidates.
1: Yeah. You could imagine after the kitty litter woman, they're saying, okay, all right, let's just get some low taxes here, whatever. And unfortunately for them, it hasn't happened. All right. For decades, whether you've been dealing with the irritations of your own pointy haired boss (laughs) or the frustrations of Excel spreadsheets. American office workers, have thrilled to the adventures of Dilbert. But now Dilbert, the benighted office worker, has been canceled. Kelly, what is going on?
0: Okay, so Dilbert, the creation of cartoonist Scott Adams. Well, Scott Adams, love him, one of the all-time weird guys, but this time he's gone a step too far by pretty
1: much... (laughs) We all love Scott Adams, but he's gone too far.
0: (laughs) When I say love, I mean I have a just a deep and disgusting fascination with the unfolding events of his life. Maybe I should disclose up here that my parents went to college with Scott Adams, so every Whoa. time he yeah, every time he does something insane, I'm like Oh, that could be my dad in a dark world. It's a good measuring (laughs) stick of, that's not really where your life should be at age 65. Anyway, so Scott Adams, Dilbert cartoonist. He appears to have endorsed outright racial segregation last week. For folks who don't know, he's, in addition to creating Dilbert, he's sort of this wannabe intellectual dark web figure. He's not actually smart, so he can't do the intellectual part of that. But he hosts a regular YouTube show where he gets into the weeds of politics. And last week, he popped off a little too hard. He started spouting off about how black people are racist against white people, according to him. He called them actually a hate group. He says, for white people, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the fuck away. Now, That's not really something you can say or should say. And a lot of the newspapers that syndicate Dilbert said, yeah, that's kind of the final straw. He's been, I think, on thin ice for a while. He has some wacky stuff, but a whole bunch of newspapers said we're pulling the plug on him. And now Dilbert joins the ranks of the canceled.
1: Uh, Kelly, what's your personal relationship with Dilbert?
0: What's my personal relationship with Dilbert? Well, I'm kind of of the younger gen. I've never worked in a cubicle. I've never had a dog bully me or worn a necktie that sticks up in a weird <laughs> you direction. So... I can't say that I really relate to Dilbert that hard. But, okay, this is interesting because in his justification for these remarks...
1: Could I just lay out my background with Dilbert? Because I'm coming to this from a personal point of view. So, Kelly, you're a little younger than me. And it seems like maybe you're a little less interested in Dilbert than I was (laughs) as a child. Because I was so into Dilbert. I had... I think I would have been in like the third or fourth grade. I had a bunch of Dilbert books. I read the Dilbert. So there's the Dilbert comic compendium, but I think people often forget that Scott Adams also wrote a bunch of business books called things. I think there's one called the Dilbert principle. There's a bunch of books like this. And I just remember I was in like the fourth grade. We were just on vacation. I was just sitting reading a copy of the Dilbert principle. I don't know what the appeal was about Dilbert to me. Dilbert, if you to remember, comics used to be a lot worse than they are now. There's kind of like some fun ones. They've kind of updated the form, but Dilbert was one of the sort of a cutting edge comic in that it wasn't Mark Trail or Apartment 3G or BC or Beetle Bailey. And so Dilbert also used to be a lot more whimsical. There were these dinosaurs lived with Dilbert. What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, it was cool. I mean, even then though, there were signs of trouble ahead. There was this nation called Elbonia, which now that I think of it, it was kind of a stand-in because it was the 90s, kind of a stand-in for Bosnia. These people were very thinly caricatured. Obviously, Dogbert would get up to all kinds of mischief with them. There was Catbert. There were all these kinds of characters. And my love affair with Dilbert Ended in tragedy for me personally, because I had a giant Dilbert Halloween mask, including the tie, which was made of wire so it could fold up. So I had this mask from fifth grade and then in sixth grade or maybe seventh grade, I moved to a different town and I had my rare chance of hanging out with a like semi cool crowd. And some girls invited me to go trick-or-treating with them. And so rather than show up like a vampire or something, I thought, oh, I got my Dilbert full face mask. And let's just say, walked around looking like Dilbert. And let's just say I did not get invited back the next year. So that is my Dilbert experience. But I had checked in. Dilbert has Scott Adams here. He had been putting a lot of his beliefs in the comic for a while. I had checked in. He'd been on a long rant against ESG, this idea that corporations should look out for global warming and stuff like that. He had a character, I believe a black character named Token who was a comment on DEI stuff. It would be things like this, but I think he was conservative, the black character was, and so he would say things like, I identify as white. And the DEI coordinator would go, ah, I'm going crazy. So anyway, so that's the update on Dilbert. Kelly, what do you think it is about these comments that finally prompted, Scott Adams has been at it for a while, but what put him over the edge here?
0: Oh my god. So I can tell you what he used as justification for these remarks. To your point, yeah, he's always been kind of, or at least recently, been sort of pushing the boundaries here. been. A looking for the edge. And during this video last week, he found this, I don't know, weirdly worded poll that said it asked people if black people if they agreed with the statement it's okay to be white. Now, most folks probably know this. That is a 4chan meme. It's basically meant to reorient the conversation about race and turn it into something about white victimhood where it's like, oh, you don't agree that it's okay to be white. It's a conversation derailer. So some pollster decided to ask a whole bunch of black people that most of them said, yeah, it's fine. A good number of them said no, it's not fine, which honestly, if you do that with a recognizable meme, I'm not surprised that's the answer. Scott Adams did not take into account that this is a did not take into account that that's an objectively bizarre thing to ask someone and said, whoa, look at all these black people who hate me. White people should stay away from black people. He has since then offered a whole bunch of other explanations for why what he said isn't racist or actually let me take a step back because he did admit that it's racist, but he is an advocate of this worldview where everything is either racist against white people or black people, that it's a zero sum game. He said in this follow up video, quote, what I did, which was the opposite of racism, but also racism. racism. He went on to say things that like you can be racist as a black person by taking a job at a Fortune 500 company, which he said would unfavorably advantage black candidates. They're looking to hire black people. Now, I can tell you that if you look at like Fortune 500 racial breakdowns, they are not hotbeds of diversity. They are disproportionately favoring white candidates. But Scott Adams went further. He went on to invoke the Mike Pence rule, which is like, if you're a married man, you shouldn't be alone with a woman who's not your wife in any capacity because she's going to like accuse you of sexual assault or something. He said, I'm going to read this as rambling, but it's illustrative. He goes, who disagrees with the idea that you should stay away from pockets of people where the odds are that they are not going to like you? Again, it's nothing to do with any individual. Absolutely no discrimination involved there. I'm just saying as a personal career decision, you should absolutely be racist when Everett's to your advantage. He also goes that he says that black people are, quote, primed to see racism everywhere. He says the Mike Pence role would say, you want to get some distance. Now, is that racist? Yeah, by definition, but it's racist in a personal success context, which is completely allowable. So basically, he's saying that for some reason, black people don't seem to like me, Scott Adams. So I'm going to invoke the Mike Pence rule, which accuses women of being Jezebels who falsely accuse, and I'm going to stay away from them. And for some reason, black people won't like that either. So that's the Scott Adams spiral that he's on right now. He's trying to pull himself out. He gave an interview with Hotep Jesus. He's a kind of right-wing black commentator.
1: Oh, God. By the way, yeah, read my article about him on The Daily Beast. Absolute insane (laughs) anti-Semite. So that's a great guy to, to rehab your image.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Scott Adams, his Dilbert career appears to be in the tank. I think most newspapers have either pulled the plug on him or they're mauling it right now. No one wants to be the last person holding the racist dog cartoon in their papers. So I think, as Scott Adams says, probably accurately, predicted that's the end of that revenue stream for him so kelly
1: as we bid goodbye to scott well first let me say this i think scott's much more explicit racist remarks than in the past have really underlined and made added sort of a curious footnote to his previous other i would say his biggest moment in the republican party which was being the progenitor of the idea that trump didn't say there were very fine people in charlottesville i mean he's the guy who kind of came up with this idea that that the very fine people thing that that is a hoax and trump didn't say that or there's this very all this added context. So that's the guy who came up with this.
0: Yeah. And in fact, he actually invoked that in one of his recent live streams, saying that people were taking his comments out of context exactly like they had taken the very fine people comments out of context. And in both of those cases, you go back and you listen to the context and you say, not only is that what you said, I think it's actually a bit worse. So he does identify, I think, with Trump in some ways. He has a new book out about how to persuade people to go along with your opinion and it's got Dogbert dressed up as Trump on the front. This is sort of a political lodestar for him and he's trying to pull that card. But unfortunately, you can just go back and look at what he said.
1: Kelly, as we bid goodbye to Dilbert here, can you hit me with a Dilbert failed business or two?
0: (laughs) Or two. Buddy, how long do you have? <laughs> I think my favorite failed Dilbert business is either burritos, which were a microwave burrito concept that he had with Dilbert on it, or we don't talk that much about WenHub. WenHub was his short-lived sort of like live streaming platform where you could hire an expert to tell you things. And I think the death knell of WenHub was when he tried to get victims of a recent mass shooting to go on and talk about their experience for money of which he would take a 20% cut. So not maybe the business mastermind that his business books would sell him as, but he's definitely trying.
1: So much of Scott Adams' recent, I think maybe decade or so has been longer than that, really. I mean, 15 years has been trying to sort of give Dilbert the ubiquity, not just of a Garfield, but almost a Mickey Mouse. (laughs) Like, like He feels that Dilbert should be this kind of like canonical American character. And he sort of keeps getting foiled And sort of also that he should be at the same time. I mean, he has all these kind of entrepreneurial schemes and he keeps getting foiled. And so Scott Adams is undergoing a divorce from a much younger woman. They were married for roughly two years. And so I think that may explain also some of his behavior here. So that appears to be also, I think, playing a role here. So Dilbert, didn't work out for you. We'll see what replaces him. I only hope that similar beloved comics like Hagar the Horrible don't get into the intellectual dark web.
0: If Kathy goes anti woke, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to shout, Ack. Ack! (laughs) CRT! Irving! All right, Will, over at Fox News, they have the election denialists. They put their heart and soul into it. But, oh, wait, what's this lawsuit that seems like maybe Fox News was lying about election denialism?
1: We're really getting just so many riches from this lawsuit. So Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox News over Fox hosts and guests' claims that the election was stolen using Dominion equipment. This lawsuit, as we're recording this just yesterday, we got a drop of new files in this lawsuit. Lawsuit. There was a big one last week, and. Th- it's all really exposing, giving us more insight into how Fox News works, really I think maybe than we've ever had, because it's showing through Discovery, Dominion's lawyers got text messages between people and emails between people like Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Rupert Murdoch, Suzanne Scott, the head of Fox News. I mean, it really is just giving you this glimpse into it, and I think there's a couple takeaways here. I think one of them is that, this is probably obvious to a lot of people who watch Fox News, but that they really do not care about what's true at all, and they just, you have to lie in sort of a very specific way. And so in the aftermath of Trump's election defeat, they're saying, oh, geez, we're losing all this rating share to Newsmax and these other right wing competitors. We need to stop saying the election wasn't stolen and we need to kind of imply that it was, but in a way that won't get us sued. And Kelly, how did that work out for them?
0: I mean, in a word, really badly. Some of these text messages that come out are incredible. I had an old editor who used to tell me to like text and send Slack messages as if it's going to appear in court in a subpoena. And somebody needs to tell Fox this because there's some really colorful stuff in here. We're seeing the kind of a review of some of the stars of election denialism, the folks who were big names, didn't last, but people like Sidney Powell. And these texts show that Fox hosts knew Sidney Powell was completely off her rocker. Tucker Carlson is texting Laura Ingram saying Sidney Powell is lying. By the way, I caught her. It's insane. Ingram saying Sydney is a complete not known. We'll work with her. Ditto with Rudy, Rudy being Rudy Giuliani. But even as they're saying that these sources are completely bogus, they're also going to bat for Trump in a way that promotes election denialism. They've got Tucker Carlson texting Sean Hannity about a colleague who did you know, a real fact check and upheld the idea that Trump, yeah, he lost the election. And Carlson is saying, we've got to find a way to fire this woman. So it's a through line, right? Fox hosts and guests will make insane claims on air. People behind the scenes will be like, I don't know if you can do this. There's something at Fox called the brain room (laughs) where they have uh, fact checkers and they fact check these allegations that Dominion had somehow thrown the election for Joe Biden. Fact checkers said, no, that's not true at all. Fox looked at that and then according to new filings, they just fired the fact checkers. So this is not a great thing to show up in court if you're getting sued for defamation. The idea that you knew this was fake. And rather than act on it, rather than put real facts out into the world, you said, oh, I don't like those facts. You're out, you're out on the street. So it's definitely, I think, kind of legally grim for Fox News right now and these treasure troves really of text messages that have been coming out I think are some of the best insight into that network that we've seen in a long time.
1: It really it offers a glimpse into how Fox is really terrified of its audience and this is something we talk about a lot here on Fever Dreams but the audience is because these media outlets most importantly I think Fox News have sort of conditioned these audiences to not live in the world of reality and To not accept hard facts and things that might not be so fun to admit, like, oh, I guess Donald Trump lost. They instead are, they now have to cater to these audiences and their expectations. And so you see these things, as you said, where after Fox's White House reporter very gently did a sort of fact check, actually, the election wasn't stolen. And then Tucker is saying, we got to fire her. Or this guy, this other guy named Leland Vittert, who is, was covering the aftermath of the election. And we see really top Fox executives saying, Leland's being too condescending to people who think the election was stolen. Get to his Producer, And then suddenly the tone changes. And so things like that. And just absolutely terrified of Newsmax. I was struck by a Fox executives email where they were freaking out that Newsmax did a million viewers in a night. And they said, someone named Grant Stinchfield did this? Who's this guy? So first of all, put some respect on Grant Stinchfield's name. But they just absolutely flipping out all the way up to Rupert Murdoch. Really, by the way, really intimately involved in the running of Fox News in a way that really clearly very obsessed with the personalities. He had these things where he would say, for example, the guy who was in charge of calling the election and calling various states. Of course, Fox angered a lot of its viewers by being the first to call Arizona for Biden. And then a few weeks later... Rupert Murdoch says, all right, give that guy the boob. He's got to go. So really closely tied to it. The one other funny thing I found was how they really micromanage these personalities. So at one point, a top box executive says, look, Rudy Giuliani, he looked like a total idiot in the Borat movie when he tried to have sex with Borat's daughter. We got to keep Rudy off the air for a while.
0: Yeah, no, it's really interesting. This latest batch, there's a deposition now from the Murdochs and it shows that they're, like you said, very intimately involved with the running of Fox News. I think that really cuts against the narrative that we get every, what, six months or so that's like, oh, the Murdochs are moving away from Trump. They've seen the light. They're not going to promote him anymore. Well, mm, according to this, not exactly true. In fact, what struck me as like maybe the most borderline illegal thing from this filing is that Rupert Murdoch apparently gave inside information to Jared Kushner about ads that the Biden campaign was going to run. He gave him that intel before the ads were even running. So this is, I mean, we talk about Fox News acting as an extension of the Trump campaign, but like, wow, that's not even really hyperbole in this situation.
1: Kelly, on that topic, I mean, as you say, I mean, I think that's a budding scandal. and should be a massive thing if right now we're just getting this account from Dominion's lawyers. The other thing is they also say that they gave Kushner, that Fox gave Kushner debate strategy, which would imply to me that they gave him advance notice of what questions. We're going to be asked at a Fox presidential debate, which these things are it's like, can you imagine if CNN or MSNBC did that? There'd be a complete meltdown. And instead, of course, from the right and from the so-called media watchdogs affiliated with conservatives, we're hearing absolutely nothing about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my favorite Murdoch moments in this latest filing was actually him kind of going to bat for Mike Lindell, who, you know, is getting sued out of his ass by Dominion. But Rupert Murdoch defended the idea to keep platforming Mike Lindell and his election lies, saying that Fox just keeping him on air because it was good publicity it was it brought in the viewers and he says quote this decision is not red or blue. It is green, which it's a Hollywood moment for him. But it comes with the expense of getting one of the most prominent election deniers to say absolutely ludicrous things on your show, which turn into a $1.6 billion lawsuit, which is what Fox is facing from Dominion right now.
1: There's so many tasty nuggets in here. And I think (laughs) including this idea that, well, regarding Mike Lindell, he's obviously, I think it's fair to say Fox's most important advertiser. And so at one point, this lawsuit reveals that after Mike Lindell insulted Fox on news Max, my sense is because they didn't want him making election denial stuff. After that, Fox, rather than saying "Hey, Mike, get over it," they sent him a gift basket <laughs> and a handwritten apology from the CEO. And like I said, I mean, there's so many inter- so much interesting stuff here. There's also this the Tucker Carlson's just absolute terror of Trump turning on him. There's a point, he's texting his producer saying, Trump is a demonic force. Trump only knows how to destroy, but if we play our cards right, he won't destroy us. It's a personal project of mine. I love noting the use of like demonic energy (laughs) on the American right. And this idea that Trump is sort of this like unshackled, this ancient creature. (laughs) They've unleashed him, but they have to kind of dodge him is, I think, an evocative one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love I want to get like some D&D classes invoked here, you know, like he's a mage or something. He's a warlock.
1: He's a dark lich.
0: <laughs> Blood elf. I yes. do think it's really interesting, right? The terror that Fox News has of not just Trump, but like you said, of its audience. Fox said that. When they called for Arizona in Biden's favor, he says, do the executives understand how much credibility and trust we've lost with our audience? We are playing with fire for real. An alternative like Newsmax could be devastating for us. So they understand the position they've landed themselves in, right, where they can't moderate at all. They cannot speak out against Trump. They can't even indicate real election results that look bad for him because there's always an alternative. There's a Newsmax. There's an OANN that's going to eat Fox's lunch if they don't say the wildest things that their base wants to hear.
1: Just in closing, I think there was this one, so much of the filing is about Fox trying to walk this line without alienating the audience, but also without provoking a billion-dollar libel lawsuit, as obviously they failed to do here. There are these emails where, in the filing that came out on Monday, there are these emails where two Fox business executives are talking. This is interesting because they're noting... This viewer hunger for voter fraud claims and that this is an opportunity for Newsmax. And the Fox Business guys say, you know, this might be an opening for Fox Business. Of course, classic business topic. <laughs> the election was stolen. <laughs> but getting Sidney Powell on it, et cetera. And they say, but here's the thing. And this is a quote, we just can't play for it openly. So they're saying we gotta just do it a little less, obviously. So I thought that was very interesting. And really, and there's more to come. I should say the exhibits in this case should be dropping in a matter of days. It's a little unclear exactly when, but and how redacted they'll be, but something to watch for and just a fascinating look inside Fox News.
0: All right, Will, who is our guest this week?
1: Okay, this week we've got Seth Harp. He's an investigative reporter and contributing editor at Rolling Stone. I'm interested in Seth because he's done a lot of reporting on mysterious death, overdoses, possible culture of impunity involving soldiers, and particularly the special forces around Fort Bragg in North Carolina. He's working on a book tentatively titled The Fort Bragg Murders, and the description is the book is about drug trafficking and impunity in the U.S. special forces and the ultra-elite Delta Force. This sort of hits on Fever Dreams topics of mystery and secrecy And the U.S. security state, and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm eager to speak with Seth.
2: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
0: Fevered dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers. The people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet.
1: Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation.
0: Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up.
1: Okay, this week on Fever Dreams, we've got Seth Harp. He's an investigative reporter and a contributing editor at Rolling Stone. He's done a lot of reporting, on misdeeds and drug use and drug overdoses and all these issues in the US military, including at Fort Bragg. And he's currently working on a book for Viking called The Fort Bragg Murders. Seth, welcome to the podcast.
3: Hey Will, thanks for having me.
1: So Seth, last year you wrote a big story for Rolling Stone about the secrecy surrounding all of these deaths at Fort Bragg. For someone like me who hasn't been following this stuff super closely, I sort of had this sense of all these deaths going on in the military and in particular at Fort Bragg, that there was a lot of secrecy. It seemed like something was going wrong. For the lay reader, what has been happening at Fort Bragg?
3: A lot of deaths, a big wave of fatalities, especially in 2020 and 2021, and continuing to last year, although it's unclear because I haven't been able to get all the documents through FOIA, but a large number of American soldiers, more than 100 American soldiers died there over the course of about two years, and the causes of that were very unclear. Now, you mentioned the overdose thing. I think that ultimately that explains it in a a sort of marginal way because you're dealing with a large population of 50,000 soldiers. A lot of them, some of them just died from car crashes and things like that, but on top of that, there were a large number of murders, unprecedented record number of suicides, and then also... Most recently found out record-setting numbers of overdoses. And so those things in combination are what accounted for the very large death toll.
0: When you talk about a very large death toll, I mean, just how many deaths have you uncovered over the past couple of years?
3: 109 in 2020 and 2021. Those are the last two years for which I have complete records.
1: And is that unusually high?
3: it would seem so i will say that the military i have repeatedly asked them can you show me another base where there's been a death toll this high in 2 years like for example can you show me that i don't know there were 95 deaths at fort bliss in like 1998 1999 just some kind of point of comparison like that because they will tell me in off the record conversations like hey sometimes we just have these clusters like it's really not that unprecedented blah 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 but they have never been able to actually point to a situation or a past occurrence like this in the past so i'm going to stick with my assumption that it really is unprecedented.
1: So how did you get onto this story? I mean, I know you're in the military yourself. You've covered the military in the past as a reporter. But how did you get onto this thing with Fort Bragg? And you're working on this book about the base and about the special forces. I
3: mean, the thing to understand about Fort Bragg is it's not just another military base like Fort Hood or something, where there was the Vanessa Guillen case. And there were a lot of news around Fort Hood. Fort Bragg is a really important place in the sort of national security apparatus of the United States. It's the headquarters of the Joint Special Operations Command. The headquarters of the Green Berets and really it is the sort of beating heart of the United States entire like global special operations complex much more so than Northern Virginia or Langley or other places where people typically associate as being the sort of heart of the black operations. No, it's actually all at Fort Bragg and has been that way increasingly and steadily since the 1980s. That's where the center of gravity has really shifted. And so there were a number of murders that took place in between 2018 and 2020 that were linked to soldiers in a unit called Delta Force, which is a big part of JSOC. And it's very involved. It would take me a while to get into the full story. But to answer your question, what got me interested in the story to begin with was a murder that took place in 2020 of a guy named Billy Levine, who was a Delta Force operator who had done like 14 tours and who had a long history of committing crimes and getting away with it, including murder. He had killed a guy in his house and basically covered up other crimes that he had committed had just sort of disappeared. And then lo and behold, his body turned up, shot multiple times in the chest. Dumped in the woods right outside Fort Bragg, right outside Delta Force's compound, in fact. And no one can say exactly what happened to this guy and to this day.
1: Really? I was about to ask, why was he murdered?
3: Well, so no one knows that the case is unsolved and the FBI doesn't appear to be doing anything really to advance the case. They, put, they basically put up a wanted poster is the extent of their investigation as well, for the last two years, as far as I can tell. And incidentally, I'm not just saying this to criticize the FBI casually or baselessly. Like I've interviewed Levine's family, his mom and dad both talked to me. A lot of people that knew him, that were close to him, I've talked to these people. Other, The other guy that was murdered, because there's another guy that was murdered. Like I said, this is a very complex, it's almost like Baroque, Gothic story that just keeps unfolding and unfolding. But. Around the central murder, Levine know his family, know his friends. They are very critical of the FBI's complete lack of action. And we can't really look inside their decision-making process. But from the outside, it looks like they understand that this case is just nothing but a giant embarrassment for the U.S. government and for some of the most prestigious and important institutions within the U.S. government like Delta Force, like JSOC. And it just needs to go away. and needs to just not have anything come out of it any more than it already has. But the two main, I think, theories, mostly speculative, but based on good reasons in both cases, a lot of people, when you talk to them, particularly people that are close to the unit, close to Delta Force, will speculate without evidence that Levine was killed by his own teammates because in the years between his death, I mean, he was a like a broken operator. He had terrible drug problems, PTSD, the most extreme sort. Like I said, he had done 14 deployments. He's actually a really interesting guy. I mean, he wasn't sort of the sort of knuckle-dragging stereotype of, a, of an operator. He came from very humble origins in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, joined the Army at a very young age in order to get free LASIK eye surgery. And just turned out that he had what it took to be an elite commando at a time when Delta Force was becoming what it became in the Iraq War, which was just an industrial-scale killing machine that was going out and doing a operations night after night. You will report on Mike Flynn in connection with your QAnon stuff. Mike Flynn and Stanley McChrystal were a big part of creating the modern-day Delta Force And Levine, he was taken up into the unit around that time, and it broke his brain. I mean, going out those that many operations, killing that many people, the things that he saw and that would he would talk to other people about his feelings about this. He was highly disturbed by what he had participated in. Like I said, he had a serious drug problem as a result of it—heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, you name it—he was on it. And in addition to that, he was against the wars politically. He had had. Sort of political awakening where he was opposed to what was going on and he broke down. I mean, he had a mental breakdown in 2018, killed his best friend for reasons that are still very unclear. He killed this guy right in front of his own six-year-old daughter and in in front of the other guy's daughter as well. But because Delta Force is what it is, these guys cannot go to prison. If you have ever served in Delta Force, if you've ever been in JSOC, you're not getting arrested. And if you committed a crime, that crime is going to disappear. The district attorney will be talked to, phone calls will be placed, and those records will disappear. And that's what happened with Levine. He was arrested like five different times on felony charges in Fayetteville, including some of the, which is right by Fort Bragg, little town right before Bragg, Fayetteville. Levine was running around with some of the baddest dudes in town, these fucking trailer park narcos, just bad people. And he was running around shooting pe- at people in the street. I mean, he was just totally out of control. Like I said, he was a broken operator. He was had completely lost his mind. And so that's what makes people speculate that he had been killed by his teammates because he was just a problem that needed to go away. He had, like I said, arrested five times on felony charges. Every single time those charges disappeared, you cannot find a record of them in the North Carolina court system. You can only find like the police records where it shows that his name was put on in an incident report.
1: It's just fascinating stuff. I mean, this idea of these sort of special forces guys who just running a amok and operating with impunity.
3: Yeah, certainly in the case of Levine, that was it. and it came at a time when there was a lot of that taking place. A lot of guys, a lot of special operations units being embarrassed by the outrageous and out of control behavior of certain operators. Eddie Gallagher case was a big one. The murder of Logan Melgar, which the Daily Beast was all over, and Molly, other things like that. And so Levine was one of those cases. He belonged to a different type of unit. Like Delta Force is a cut above all of those other units. Even SEAL Team Six is kind of like the unit that gets I don't want to say the fall guy, but they kind of take all the flack, even though they're much smaller, and not much smaller in terms of the number of operators, but they're just less influential and important than a unit than an organization like Delta Force. So But in any case, the other theory of Levine's death is that it was a drug deal, just a drug deal gone wrong. And it's the case that Levine started working at a certain point for drug traffickers In Fayetteville. That's just another whole nother rabbit hole like Green Berets in that part of North Carolina. Trafficking drugs, there's a lot of that that's been going on as well so.
0: It's so fascinating to me because I know as reporters often we're really dependent on documents being filed as we expect that there is gonna be a police report that there are gonna be charges and you're sort of reporting from a black hole right where these documents are just gone. I mean how do you navigate that as a reporter? How do you get people to give you these stories?
3: Well the documents are not always entirely gone because it was in the beginning a document-based story. Like you can't actually find the arrest records, but then there's no court case as a result of that. In other cases, another a buddy of Levine's, Cristobal Lopez Vallejo, who was another operator on Delta Force around the same time, he allegedly raped a woman. That case really did disappear. You can't find any records from it. It's completely expunged. But to answer your question, Kelly, the main inroad that I have been able to find are the family members of these guys, their moms, their sisters, their ex-wives, ex-girlfriends. These women are not afraid to talk about what's been going on because the guys in these units, they don't say anything. I mean, I've had very little luck penetrating uh, developing sources inside, which is on active duty in Delta Force now, which is not hard to understand since they would go to prison, assumedly, for speaking to the press. They're all bound by the most restrictive NDAs you can imagine and also federal laws that require them to keep secrets about everything they're doing, including the existence of Delta Force is technically a secret. It's not. No one's not supposed to know that it, exists. But people live in this community. It's an American city of X number of people, 100,000 people. They're all in one way or another connected to Army Special Forces, Army Airborne Corps, or JSOC, or the Green Berets, what have you. They know all about what these guys are like, and they will tell you in a very frank way about what life is like around there and what happens when someone like this gets into trouble, whether it's causing an accident in a DWI or something much more serious, like in Levine's case, when it was murder. And what happens is that those charges go away and those people do not get prosecuted.
1: So I feel like through your reporting and the reporting of others, people, we've heard increasing amounts about this idea of sort of out of control special forces. Is there something about the way that America is prosecuting its wars that we're coming to rely on these kind of unhinged guys and that it's giving them this kind of impunity? It's really interesting
3: to look back at the history of where J. comes from. Can you just break out what JSOC stands for briefly? Sure. It's the Joint Special Operations Command. And if you look at any kind of account of the, like any military history that talks about JSOC's founding, it was founded in 1980, right at the beginning of the Reagan administration. The standard account is that it was a, came out of the experience of Operation Eagle Claw, which is the Carter administration's failed attempt to rescue American hostages in Iran, the embassy in Tehran. Because, so the story goes, the Army's Delta Force was supposed to assault that embassy kill the guards and spirit away the hostages. But there was miscommunication between the Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps logistics and transport elements, blah, blah, blah. All this miscommunication, lack of a unified command, it all went to hell and the mission was aborted and like eight service members died. Well, there is some truth to that. Certainly, JSOC, by creating an amalgam of all the other service branches, top commando units like JSOC contains the Army's Delta Force, it contains the Navy's SEAL Team 6, the Air Force. 24th Special Tactics Squadron, other special mission units that are not widely known, all fall under JSOC. JSOC is essentially a fifth service branch. It exists outside the aegis of the Army, Navy, etc it is its own thing. and But I look at the historical timeline and notice that this is right after the Church Committee investigation. The Intelligence Oversight Act was passed in 1980. The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence was formed in 1980. The CIA had its wings clipped in 1980, essentially. The fun was over for them at that point. All of their abuses had come to light. Congress, the agency was incredibly demoralized. It was on its back foot. People were leaving. And this is right around the time that Bush Sr. and Reagan come into office. Bush was a very very Very, very canny bureaucratic operator, the ultimate insider in the world of intelligence. He had run the CIA during this period, and then he gets up into the executive office in the top level of the executive branch, and then all of a sudden these covert units start proliferating in the military, which is not subject to the same congressional reporting requirements. The military can do stuff, can do covert actions, so the lawyers think, without reporting into Congress. Or at a minimum, they're not subject to the same Intelligence Oversight Act and other reforms, legal reforms that came out of the church committee. And the military has a lot more money and a lot more capabilities. And in many ways, it's just better equipped to do everything that the CIA was doing. It basically was able to move all over to the military under the auspices of JSOC. And that trend has just continued in the decades sense as JSOC has grown and grown and grown. And really, you could just say that these days, the CIA is just a sort of intel auxiliary to JSOC, even though it remains much better known to just regular Americans.
0: One thing that you keep bringing up here is the possibility of drugs being involved in this killing or Green Berets trafficking drugs. And I think that's really striking the extent to which drugs do seem to play a role on life on base there. Can you give us a sense of like, how pervasive is this issue?
3: It's worse at Fort Bragg than any other military installation. And there's a sort of cultural current in the United States in our history where we have a kind of a sort of a dark association between We're talking about the 1980s. We're talking about JSOC, talking about the CIA, the Reagan administration's covert wars, the stuff in Latin America, the Delta Force and the Green Berets have been involved down there forever. JSOC first uh, was put to operational use in supplying aid to the Contras in Nicaragua. And I don't think that the army is trafficking cocaine into the United States, to put it bluntly, but there is almost like a sort of stylistic, sort of rhyming element. I don't really have the exact words to describe it, but the way that the men in these units who have been stationed for example like in Colombia for years will all of a sudden get into the game themselves and be packing 40 kilos of coke onto a c-130 to be brought into miami or a navy seal is coming through a and with cocaine and it's carry-on there's just a lot more of these cases than there used to be and i talked to some of the guys who do this and who have gone to prison for this type of activity and it's a result of 20 years of war in which you had these units empowered to basically be carrying out missions in, in civilian attire and under vague legal findings in a dozen different countries around the world that we still don't know fully about their operations. But it's all part of one sort of murky atmosphere of intrigue. And I would say just like a breakdown in whatever culture of ethics that had existed before, I think has been highly attenuated by it especially when Trump came into office. And there was this moment in 2016 or 2017, where it was kind of the tail end of uh, Operation Iraqi or Inherent Resolve in Syria, which was the JSOC's biggest war yet, which they had gotten to prosecute for years without any attention from the press at all. Really an apex of power for the sort of covert military command. And Trump kind of came into office. But at the same time, there was a sort of decline in the sense that the war in Afghanistan was clearly lost and the sort of global war on terror era was kind of winding down. And in Fort Bragg and in Fayetteville, you know, it was really a, definitely an atmosphere, kind of a, I don't know, speak any French, but fin de sequel, what's the end of cycle? Yeah,
1: I don't speak French either. I've always been puzzled by that phrase. It seems very smart. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. And so there was a lot of that going on, just a ton of partying, a ton of drugs. And then the pandemic really, I think, had a big effect on it as well, because that you saw violent crime and drug use increase across the United States. And it was just especially concentrated in this culture that I'm describing, the subculture that I'm describing, the stateside subculture. And that's when you saw what called the four Bragg murders in the first Rolling Stone piece one after another in the Special Forces Command, basically all of which remain unsolved to this day.
1: I don't mean to ask a glib question here, but you talk about these guys who are highly trained operators turning to drug dealing. I mean, are they really effective and vicious at drug dealing? Because you imagine these guys have all this training and violence and how to run these operations.
3: I just interviewed a guy named James Matthews, who was a Navy SEAL for many years, who was busted for a very large Marijuana distribution, nationwide multi million dollar weed smuggling operation that he told me was much more extensive than the authorities ever knew. And he talked about how his SEAL training specifically made him a good drug smuggler, a good drug trafficker. He talked about how SEAL training taught him to identify mistakes and not keep making them, how to adapt and overcome, I think is the cliche terminology. But he went on at some length about how he was just smarter than the average. Person that gets into this business, which I have no trouble believing. He also talked about how it taught him to dress in a certain way and carry himself a certain way. He was a a middle aged white man wearing a collared shirt and with an ID card that says veteran, and he's got stickers on the back of his truck and on the back of his trailer, subtle ones, but a cop would be trained or would be able to spot them, have a Trident emblem or whatever, recognizable as this guy's a Navy SEAL, or another just a small like Navy emblem. And he'd be hauling $3 million worth of weed in his trailer and get pulled over, uh, and he would just know how to talk to the officer in the way that they would let him walk. That being said, he did mention that he was caught a couple of times by cops who just stole all of his money and let him go, which I thought was interesting. There's another guy I can think of, Daniel Gould. Daniel Golza Green Beret, who was stationed in Colombia for years by himself, which I still don't understand. I'm having trouble reaching him now because these guys are all in prison. He talked about how he just stopped giving a fuck Was his exact words. He had been in Colombia by himself and He had participated in so many missions. Daniel Gould was a war hero in Afghanistan. His element, his Special Forces team, had been ambushed by the Taliban, and he assaulted the ambush line and killed like 14 of them and was considered this hero in the 7th Special Forces group. I'd spent years in these provinces of Afghanistan where... Really, we don't know exactly what was going on. And he talked about how all the time away from home and the moral gray zone that he inhabited and this culture where everything goes so long as your tactics aren't known explicitly to the command or to the public. An internal military culture where theft of government money is kind of, it's whatever because they give these guys pallets of cash to roll with. You're a CIA paramilitary. Here's $25,000 in cash. Here's your sidearm. Now get on the plane and go. Green Berets, teams, special forces teams, ODAs, the JSOC elements that are operating, certainly like advanced force operations when they're going overseas, they're given, in addition to their weapons, just as important tool from their perspective, just stacks of cash. And so it's very common to talk to army wives and faith will can tell you all about this person and that person came home from a deployment and then lo and behold, they bought a nice Range Rover or opened this bank account or what have you. There's a lot of theft of government money that goes on. In fact, the Melger case that we mentioned a moment ago, although it was buried in the end, I think was about theft of money of this nature. So Gould was just talking about that and how all of it sort of created this, his exact words are it wore down his give a fuck meter. And he just thought, hey, you know what? I can get into this other thing. Finding cocaine in and, and Cali is easy as finding a loaf of bread, he told me. He's just one of the ones that got caught. How many don't get caught? So I would like to know.
1: Wow. Well, Seth, this- this has been a super interesting talk. And again, we've been here with Seth Harp. He's a investigative reporter and a contributing editor at Rolling Stone. Seth, where can people find your work? For the moment, find me
3: on Twitter, Seth Harp, ESQ, Seth Harp Esquire. Got a book coming out, but it won't be out for a while. Check out my work for Rolling Stone. Also check out my work for Harper's. it be a good start.
1: I was going to ask you if the book's coming out because it sounds really interesting. As we've been talking here, I was kind of just Googling if I could pre-order it. It sounds fantastic and just such an interesting topic. Again, Seth Harp, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, it is time for fresh hell where we tell you what the worst people are going to be tweeting about next week. Well, what's going on with Vivek Ramaswamy?
1: Absolutely, so this is another case like Fox News of a sort of Frankenstein's monster turning on Dr. Frankenstein. So Vivek Ramaswamy, folks may remember, is the self-styled, the anti-woke CEO, the guy who is a really rich guy who says that corporate America has gone out of control. He wrote a book, I think, called Woke Inc. So he's the guy talking about how places like Vanguard and BlackRock, all these big pension funds, that they're inculcating liberal values. So he's also a big player in the idea that the World Economic Forum and the Davos set are pushing the Great Reset, that they're trying to destroy our country. And now he's running for president. And if you kind of want to sum him up, he's kind of a right-wing Andrew Yang. He's this political outsider. He claims to have a lot of big ideas, although, as we discussed, I think, last week, a lot of his ideas are pretty standard Republican things thus far. He has a new one that the U.S. should just invade Mexico and fight the cartels ourselves.
0: That's an emerging thing, isn't it? This bizarre, like, anti-Mexico nationalism, the idea that we're going to storm the border and tell the cartels to knock it off.
1: I can't see anything wrong with it. It is so bizarre, <laughs> like, there's such a voice on the new right of this supposed pacifist except when it comes to gearing up for a new world war with china and then now also that we're going to fight a guerrilla war against the cartels it's just going to go great so Vivek Ramaswamy, as I said, he's the anti-woke CEO, but there's a challenge for Vivek. He's the arch enemy of the World Economic Forum. But in 2021, he was listed as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. So every year they do this thing of the kind of the up and comers of neoliberalism. And Vivek was listed as one of them now that he's declared against Donald Trump. So this has become an issue for him because now all these Trump people like Jack Posobiec have dug up this World Economic Forum thing and said, look, man, you're against the Great Reset. It looks like you're working for the Great Reset.
0: Yeah, no, it's really awesome because with all these people, they have this idea that corporations are woke because they have some pamphlet saying, hey, please don't be racist to your coworkers." But I mean, fundamentally, these corporations and these foundations absolutely love Ramaswamy types, right? They love people who are just like, oh, we should actually privatize schools and sell off large blocks of real estate in inner cities. These are kind of bread and butter issues for Republicans. They're really beneficial to business and the exact kinds of people that Vivek Ramaswamy is saying that are spreading the woke mind virus.
1: I will say this for Vivek to his credit. So he claims the World Economic Forum did this without his permission and i sort of believe him because it was in 2021 so that this kind of he was kind of already on his like i'm the anti-woke ceo stuff if this was in 2016 or something i might have thought okay this is a guy who sort of reinvented himself now he claims he has emails where he's very angry with the world economic forum about this he did not respond to my requests for the emails proving this and i guess the people at davos are a little too busy to respond to me themselves so this thing's a little up in the air but it is funny to see a guy who has Played a role convincing Republicans that anything associated with Davos is instantly this is the cabal, essentially. And suddenly they say, oh, well, it looks like you got a bit of cabal yourself. Now, As we're on the topic of Vivek, we also just have to note here as we close that I think we've tagged this guy as kind of an ongoing source of comedy, this campaign. Now, there's some new material out. Hugh Hewitt, the Republican Talk Radio host. Now, he loves to ask his guests these questions that are sort of meant to expose someone's ignorance, which I typically find pretty funny. He's hung up on some very specific things. He often asks if people have read The Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright. People should listen to this guy's show so you know what he's going to ask you, because it's always the same thing. He says, do you think the Rosenbergs were traitors? Whatever, man. But in this case, so Hugh Hewitt says, "Are you familiar with the triad?
0: Viva <laughs> goes, Oh, the nuclear triad. Yeah, you're talking about our new axis of sort of evil here?
1: <laughs> now, of course, the nuclear triad being the nuclear submarines and the airplanes and the missiles. This is reminiscent of when Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate, got owned by Hugh Hewitt when Hugh Hewitt asked him about Aleppo in Syria when that was in the news. And he said, what is Aleppo? So this is a classic kind of outsider candidate thing to get wrecked on. And uh, Vivek has certainly hit that stop on the campaign trail.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know what? It didn't stop Gary Johnson from polling it. Oh, well, I think maybe like one and a half percent. So Vivek Aim High could get 1.7. I
1: think when you're an outsider candidate and you kind of get that stink on you of a guy who doesn't know what he's talking about, like you have to know more than the Senate, the average senator does. But instead, you kind of bumble into this. And of course, Hugh Hewitt's kind of a, doing a little cat's paw thing for the establishment, I think. I think he's kind of slipping that knife in real nice to make way for maybe a Ron DeSantis, perhaps. But Interesting, nonetheless, and I'm sure we'll be revisiting Vivak Ramaswamy soon.
0: Absolutely. When he does not win his presidential bid, but gets what he wants, which is moderately successful podcast.
1: Yeah, more books sold.
0: On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture.
1: We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.